Thank you. Thank you so much. That's incredibly kind. Thank you. We'll see if you're still clapping here in a few minutes. <laughs> uh, I have missed you uh, so much. This morning has been wonderful to reconnect with many of you and say hi. If, if we haven't spoken yet, I'd love to spend a minute with you afterwards, so stick around if you're able. Uh, I was, um, by God's grace, born to Christian parents, uh, so this has been the longest stretch in my entire life that I haven't gathered with God's people, so it felt very, very strange to to watch on Sundays instead of being here. So thank you for your prayers and cards and texts, emails, gifts, incredibly humbled and gracious that you have been so kind to me, so thank you. I didn't know it was possible to have COVID for 61 days, but go big or go home, right? <laughs> so it's really, really wonderful to be back. I'm past it and now working to try to recover, so Appreciate your prayers for that uh, process, and um, I'm a bit rusty today, but we made it through the first one. So you think we can do it again? All right, we're in Mark 4. Would you turn with me there? And uh, boy, I've got some huge shoes to fill. You've heard a lot of great preaching over the last nine weeks. Thank you to all of you who uh, helped in filling the pulpit and uh, prayed for those and for everybody else who helped us get through that, uh, that odd time that we had. Um, we're in uh, Mark chapter 4 as we're working our way passage by passage through this great gospel where we'll learn much more about Jesus. Jesus' first recorded words in the gospel of Mark are way back in the first chapter. Jesus says this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' life and ministry are encapsulated in that single sentence. But unless you know the Bible really well today, then there's probably some aspects of that sentence that are rather bizarre and cryptic. But for those who heard Jesus say them for the very first time in the first century, they knew exactly what he meant, or at least they thought they did. You see, the Old Testament, that first two-thirds of the Bible written before Jesus came to earth, the Old Testament is pregnant with the expectation of a coming kingdom. It's what it's about, actually. Every faithful Jew longed for God to fulfill his promise of an everlasting king and an everlasting kingdom. In fact, their greatest desire was that God would send the sovereign rule and reign in his Messiah, because under this Messiah, life would get so much better. The vast majority of people in the first century who read their Old Testament, expected that this kingdom would be a physical kingdom and it would come ushered in primarily, very likely, by military conquest. 
They perceived of this kingdom through the eyes of politics. And so strong was their preconception of their king, this kingdom that even with Jesus standing there saying to them over and over and over, no, that's not the kind of kingdom I've come to bring, they still didn't get it. Even Jesus' closest followers didn't understand. Their preconceived notions blinded them to a true and better kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus embodied. Now, all these years later, the same thing can happen to us. We can have our own expectations of what God ought to do, or God has promised to do, or God says He will do. And those preconceived expectations can be so strong that they can blind us to what God is actually doing. This morning we come to a set of three sayings or parables that are crafted from the stuff of everyday life, designed in the first century to reveal truth to those ready to hear. Each one of them relates to kingdom growth. And although they express it in different ways, all three will teach us that the growth of God's kingdom occurs in surprising ways. It doesn't happen like we expect, because the kingdom isn't what we expect. In each of these parables, Jesus will correct and refine our own conceptions of what His kingdom is like and how His kingdom works. Today, Jesus will tell us what we can expect in this life as we await for the next. As we consider each one of these parables this morning, I want to encourage you to pay careful attention to what seems surprising in them, because that's the spot in which we'll find the meaning that the Lord has for us today. First, let's wrestle with a pair of sayings about a lamp and a measure. Would you follow along with me in your own copy of the Scriptures, starting in verse 21? And he, that's Jesus, said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come into the light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. In first century Palestine, you obviously didn't go into your home and flip on the light switch, much less program your lights to go on by computer at a particular time, whether you're there or not. Now, this was, this was old school. They had a kind of lighting that probably none of us in the room have ever even seen, let alone used. When Jesus speaks of a, a lamp, He's talking about something that would have looked like this. This is a, a clay lamp. And they would have poured oil here in the top, and then in this second 
hole where the spigot is, a, a small wick would have come out. And so a lamp was literally a clay, small clay pottery with a piece of wick coming out that you lit. And this was the lamp that would light your home. Now, for, for them, there was plenty of light because most of the homes were one small room. When Jesus speaks of this lamp, notice what he says. Do you, do you light a lamp in order to bring it in and then put a basket on top of it? And the way the sentence is written, there's an implied answer. That answer is no. Or, or do you light a lamp and stick it under the bed? Now, I enjoyed playing with fire as a kid, but even I knew, not good to light something and then put it under your bed. No, you don't do that. Why? Well, because that's not what the lamp is for. And if you put something tight over a lamp, what's going to happen? It's going to snuff it out. It won't fulfill its purpose. No, you set it on a shelf that will light the room. That's what the lamp is for. In verse 22, Jesus explains this parable by bluntly stating that the lamp reveals what has been hidden. The lamp lights up the room. That is, the good news of Jesus Christ, His truth, His words, His actions, reveal, they light up, they illuminate that He is, in fact, the King of the long-awaited kingdom. But it didn't look like it. He's not what anyone would have been expecting. Now, I think we should have some sympathy here. It's easy all these years later to look back on the first disciples and say, well, they were just morons. We would have known better, but we wouldn't have. You see, Jesus didn't fit the bill. They were expecting a king who would come as a conqueror who would conquer Rome. But Jesus was a carpenter, hailing from an unimportant town in an insignificant region of the country. He held no prominent degrees. He had no wealth. His pedigree, human speaking, humanly speaking, was unimpressive. His methods were downright bizarre. I mean, he went into a new town. He spoke about a kingdom without ever saying, Rome's got to go, and we're going to take it together. He simply wasn't concerned with that. Instead, when he did rebuke someone, it was one of the religious leaders of the day. He had no horses, no chariots, no swords, no clubs, and his team, his team was a bunch of ragtag nobodies. And so when they didn't get it, it wasn't because they were dumb, because he's not what anyone thought God would send. The kingdom grows, brothers and sisters, not through military might but through the gospel word. 
That's what Jesus was illuminating. No wonder the disciples didn't understand. Jesus is the light of the world, and yet His kingdom is not of this world. Only gradually and with the Spirit's help would people come to understand that Jesus was a different kind of Messiah, a far better one than they could have ever imagined. In Jesus, the apparent obscurity of God's plan would gradually be made manifest. And that's because kingdom growth, church, happens progressively. You don't get it all at once. It's revealed over time. The application here, of course, is to listen to Jesus. Pay attention to Him. And if what He says and does doesn't match your expectations of what God was supposed to have done, guess who's got to change? It's us. If you expect God to do X, but what He actually says and does is why, then Y is good, and X is not. We've got to let Jesus correct and refine our expectations. The degree to which that matters is captured in verses 24 and 25. I'll bet in a way that's a little hard for us to see at first glance. You see, when we think of measuring something, then we're thinking like a project. you got to get out the measuring tape. But that's not the kind of measure Jesus is talking about. When you went to the market in the first century and you needed to buy flour, then the way they determined how much flour to give you was to put it on a measure, a weight, a scale. And so the amount of flour you asked for would be weighed out with something uh, like a rock on the other side. And you'd be given the measure of flour that you paid for. That's what Jesus is talking about. And then he tells us to be careful that we heed God's word because with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If you weigh Jesus' words appropriately, in other words, if the gospel of his kingdom corrects your expectations and you bend to him, if you submit in repentance and belief, then progressively you will come to understand more and more and more and more of the love and the mercy and the grace and the power of God. Your understanding, your capacity to see Him and savor Him will become enlarged. His mercy will be ever clearer and more experiential. But if you fail to hear and heed Jesus' words, then even what little understanding you think you have will gradually be taken away. And in the end, you will meet the wrath of God because you've chosen to ignore and reject what He has done and said. This first paragraph is designed to teach us that there are glorious rewards for listening to Jesus and tragic consequences for rejecting Him. And so what do we do with this paragraph? Well, friends, we 
must be people who take care that we hear the word of the kingdom. And when that word smacks up against our own expectations of what we thought God was going to do, then the rule and reign of God as it's actually presented to us is better than what we thought. Even if there's pain between here and there. All who respond to this gospel with faith and repentance are welcomed immediately into a loving relationship with God. But that faith and repentance don't stop that day when we're converted, when we become Christians. No, they're, they're to become the, the very air we breathe, the lifestyle we live, the pattern of life every day, faith and repentance. You see, you grow up in the kingdom the same way you enter the kingdom. And if we bend our expectations to God and allow Him to correct them, every time when we hear the Scriptures together, we hear the King speak about His kingdom. If we say, yes, God, that is both right, true, and good, then in our responsibility to submit over time, God will heap upon us more and more grace and understanding. And so we ought to be patient with each other who are at different points in that process. We ought to even be patient with ourselves as God refines our understanding throughout the rest of our lives about who He is and what He's about. When we don't, then we risk a hardening of heart that may prevent new growth in the kingdom. It's incredibly dangerous to sit under good teaching and to read our Bibles, to hear good songs, to read good books, and not to respond to what we hear. It's risky business. That's because our hearts and our minds work like our showers. Here's what I mean. Here in Arizona, a weird thing happens. I've lived a bunch of places that hasn't happened anywhere else but here. When you turn on your shower then in a way that's unable to be seen by the naked eye, every little spigot of your shower, every time you turn it on, gets a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of calcification. And unless you clean that shower really well, then eventually one of these mornings you're going to come in there groggy-eyed, flip on that shower, and one of those little things is going to be squirting up at the sky. And you're going to be like, what's going on? Or you're going to lather up your hair, and then the water pressure is going to be so terrible that you can't hardly get it out of your hair. Why? Well, because we have incredibly hard water here. Even the water says, what are you doing living here? <laughs> All that white, gunky stuff that builds up in the showerhead is caused by that hard water, that calcification. Friends, you don't see it happening, but its evidence will be there without a doubt if you don't do something about it. Your heart 
in my heart, your mind in my mind, will slowly build up a calcification to good spiritual truth unless we're responding with obedience to what God says in His Word. I want to encourage you every time you pick up the Scriptures or sit and listen to somebody teach or go to a small group, a GC, or sit down with somebody who's mentoring you. Before you read, you would say, God, please protect me from a hard heart. God, please help me respond to what I hear with faith and repentance. If you don't, then over time, you will lose the ability to hear and respond in faith. Now let's move on to verses 26 to 29. This is the second set of parable in this section. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, but the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain of the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. In ancient Israel, many, many, many people, probably the vast majority of people, were farmers. So Jesus' parable would have been immediately relatable to them. Not so for us. Very few of us do anything with uh, seeds in the ground. But the point is still probably obvious. The farmer prepares the soil, and then the farmer scatters the seed. He doesn't cause it to grow. He simply waits. Now, he can try going out and talking to the seed. You can do it. He can water the seed. He can pray for good weather. He can pull weeds. But he does not control the seed. He can't manipulate it. He can't threaten it. He can't promise it punishment if it doesn't do its job. Nope. As the story says, he simply sleeps and rises night and day. And over time, what eventually happens? Well, if the conditions are right, one day he'll look out and something little green will be sprouting up from the ground. And then before you know it, the harvest will be ready. What's the point? Well, the power for growth is harnessed within the seed itself. The, the farmer has an incredibly important task, but his task is not the determinative one. Now, the farmer simply puts the seed where the seed will grow and waits. The germinating power of growth is found in the seed, not in the farmer. Now, Jesus wasn't looking out on a bunch of farmers and just feeling like they're discouraged about their crops. Right? He's, he's, he's not talking about literal seeds. No, he's giving a picture for us. The seed, of course, just as in the excellent sermon we heard last week, the seed represents the Word. The Word about the kingdom. As Dr. Haney shared with us last week, that Word falls on various kinds of soil. Different heart dispositions to the Word. Now, what does this parable add 
that the last one didn't, meaning the one last week about seed and soil. What do we gain from this one that we didn't gain from the last one? Well, here we learn that the growth of the kingdom is mysterious. It's mysterious. It's impossible to predict how an individual will respond to the gospel. You simply can't know, let alone how a church will respond, how a city will respond, or even how a country will respond. These are things that lie in the secret will of God that we don't know and we can't predict. God causes the growth. God regenerates people who are dead in their sin. He imparts to them the gift of faith. He sends the Spirit to produce growth and fruit in the lives of His followers. And He does so at different rates in different people in different ways. Who will respond favorably to the gospel word? I don't know. Who will reject it entirely? We don't know. What churches will experience slow but steady growth and get bigger? We don't know. What churches will be faithful but will have very, very little visible progress in terms of numbers? We don't know. What countries will be unusually marked by a large-scale responsiveness to King Jesus? And which ones will sadly remain bastions of unbelief? Only God knows. The growth of the kingdom at the largest level is mysterious. And the growth of the kingdom down at the smallest level in your own life is mysterious. Now, it's common today to hear uh, literature, YouTube videos, and churches say things about the kingdom like this. Our mission is to bring the kingdom to Tempe. Or go out this week and build the kingdom in everything you do. It's a very common way of speaking today. It sounds good. Frankly, it communicates, and you can put vision around that. But it's not the way the Bible talks. Not a single time. There's a reason it's so popular today. Because it's incredibly easy for us to be enamored with ourselves and what we can do. But it isn't how the Bible speaks of the kingdom. When the Bible talks about the kingdom, if God is the subject, then the verbs are active verbs. When the kingdom is discussed and it's talking about us, then the verbs are passive verbs. We can receive the kingdom, but we do not build the kingdom. God does that. Beware of overinflating what we have the power to accomplish. Let's focus, church, on spreading the seed, the, the kingdom word, the gospel, as far and as often as we can. And then let's pray that God would choose to give growth. God is the one who does that. 
Now let's look at the final parable for today, starting in verse 30. He said, what will we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when the seed is, grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. In other words, we've just got a small sample. The other gospels, particularly Matthew and Luke, contain many more of them. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Friends, when Jesus declared the kingdom of God is at hand, I imagine there was somebody in the back who snickered under his or her breath because it didn't look like any sort of kingdom had come in Jesus. Again, he had no large financial donors. He didn't amass a big political campaign. He had no degrees. He had no proven leadership strategy. He was just a 30-year-old rural carpenter. That was it. And yet Jesus, when he said the kingdom as at hand was declaring all the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament are bound up in me and here I am. This met no one's expectations. No one's. And so Jesus said, look, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. I was thinking a few days ago I'd bring a mustard seed, and then I thought, Chuck, that's kind of dumb. You'll hold it, and no one will see it. All right? So here you go. Here's a mustard seed. The mustard seed was the smallest of the plants planted in the gardens in ancient Israel in the first century. And so Jesus says, paradoxically, from this smallest of seed came the largest of the garden plants. Again, Jesus isn't particularly interested in the plants. That's not the point. He's using pictures to say God's kingdom, His rule and reign on earth, will begin incredibly small. How small was it? It was one person. It was Jesus. And then Jesus asked 12 people in particular, follow me. Today, those 12 have turned Christianity by the grace of God. God has built His kingdom into the largest religion on the planet. It's impossible to know exactly the number, but roughly one-third of the world's population today follows King Jesus. That is astonishing. And this is driving me bonkers. Two billion plus people. And that's just the ones alive today. That's a big mustard tree, isn't it? 
Now, that brings us to the very odd way in which this parable ends. Jesus tells a great story. The, the point is readily obvious, and then He ends with, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, we of all people can appreciate shade, right? We're starting to enter that time of year where when you go into a parking lot, what are you looking for? You're looking for that one spot that's got some shade. But what's the problem with it, even if you get it? The birds. You're going to get doo-dooed on. That's the problem. All right? So when we think of birds and trees, we don't have wonderful thoughts about it. Jesus is not expressing particular concern for birds. No, he's making an allusion to an idea that's present in quite a few Old Testament passages. Let me tell you about just one of them. In the book of Ezekiel, which is one of the long prophets, we hear about how God is sending judgment on the people because they have continually rejected Him. They have chosen sin. They have not set aside their expectations. They've tried to follow their own word instead of His. And so God tells them, judgment will come. But then when we get to chapter 17, there is this picture painted that God would one day come and send a glorious messianic kingdom, a king. And this kingdom would be like God planting a tree on the mountain in Israel. It says that God Himself would do that. And that tree would grow tremendously to the point that Ezekiel 17 verse 23 includes this phrase, in the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. With the echo of that passage from Ezekiel in his mind, Jesus said, that kingdom, the one you've grown up hearing about, the one God promised to come himself and plant, Ezekiel 17, 23, that kingdom is now here. And this kingdom will grow. The kingdom of God sometimes appears inconsequential. At times, it seems as though God's not up to much of anything. And yet, be not deceived. Jesus is growing a kingdom that is the greatest of all kingdoms and the only one that will endure. Jesus' kingdom will exceed all expectations. All God's people throughout time will find rest in the protective shade of Jesus in His rule and reign. Amen? Now, what do we do with these parables? Well, in our remaining time, what I'd love to do is try to apply the teachings of these stories to a couple of concrete, specific issues in our own day. And I, I've picked two, not because they're the only two, not because they're necessarily the two that will exactly fit you, but to try to illustrate for you the way in which we should take these concepts of God's kingdom, that it's mysterious, that it grows differently than we thought it would, that it starts small and gets bigger, that it's surprising, 
And we take those ideas and think about them in some issues so that you then could try to flesh them out in the issues that you're thinking about in your own life. Now, I want to start with uh, one. I, I have one that's going to be controversial, and the other I don't think will be. So let's get the hard one out of the way first. Deal? Okay. Um, I want to think with you just for a moment about the intersection of these parables and notions of political power and influence. Now, I'm walking out on a limb and sawing it off behind me, but it's been nine weeks, so I got a lot stored up, all right? Uh, We're about to enter midterm elections, and then before you know it, we will again be at that entire year period of time plus where we're considering who will vote for for the office of president of the United States again. Frankly, I'm not looking forward to any of that. I'm tired of it. It's not because those offices are unimportant. They're incredibly important. But I'm tired of it because of the way people treat each other. And in particular, I've become very incredibly burdened by the amount of vitriol in politics, even in the church. The, The poison that we spew on one another when we have different political views is awful, and it ought not be that way. Friends, I think the way these parables can help us as we prepare for that time is this. Church history shows us unequivocally from the first century onward that when Christianity and the civil government are conflated into the same thing, bad things happen. It doesn't go well for the state and it doesn't go well for the church. Why? What's well, because these are both authorities that God's given, but they have different spheres of responsibility. You see, Romans says that God has given to the state the sword. What does that mean? It means if you break civil laws, you will be punished. But that's part of God's design for the peace of society. God has not given the church the sword. And God has not given the state the gospel word. He's given that to the church. When you try to boil the two down and make them into the same thing, a mess will ensue. If you don't believe me, pick up any history book. It's all over the place. Yet many Christians today in this country speak and act as though the most consequential thing that's ever going to happen is your candidate getting into office next time. And we're so drunk on that view that we stupor around in it over and over and over without realizing it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Church, this represents a flawed understanding, both of God's kingdom and how God's kingdom grows. We will never legislate the flourishing 
of the church. The government will never make the church stronger. It doesn't work like that. That's not what it's for. Political power and influence have been rather poisonous for God's people. They don't make the church stronger. Throughout church history, the church has often been at its best when it has the least power. So, study the issues, vote as you would understand the Bible and your own conscience to be directing you. Get into politics as a career if you think you can do good in it. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. But I am saying be careful where your hope is placed. And be careful that you don't think of this country as the mustard tree under which the birds will find their rest. This country has come and it will go just like every other one. But God's kingdom will endure. It very well may be that we are entering a time in which uh, we are losing political voice. And that will bring about conditions ripe for the spread of the growth of God's kingdom. Now, a second issue. Think with me about one other area where we could apply these parables. That area is boredom with God. Now, you don't need to raise your hand, but are you bored with God? Do you find the, the songs don't have the luster they once did? That when you do open the Bible on your own, it, it's hard to get through? And sermons and conversations about the Lord don't strike you as urgent, important, necessary. Has it all just become a kind of droning in the background, white noise, blah, 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 blah? Are you bored with God? God's kingdom grows like a tiny little seed in the ground, meaning so much of what God is doing, we don't see. It's mysterious to us. It's beyond our realm of understanding. It's imperceivable to our human eyes. But that doesn't mean God's checked out and gone on vacation. It means that God's kingdom grows in ways different than we expect. And it doesn't happen like we would think it would. We are accustomed today to immediate results. How many times in the last week have you put something in the microwave and then stood there irritated about how long it took? I'm old enough to remember um, back when we, we had these things called VHS tapes, and you stuck them into a VCR, and then when it was over, what'd you have to do? Oh my gosh, this was like torture. It'd take three, four, five minutes to rewind a tape. 
And then if you didn't do it because you're irritated at how long it took, then when you took it back to the store, you got fined for it. I'm old enough to remember when you took tests that you had to wait weeks to get results. Now, often when my kids take tests, they're on computers. They immediately know how they do. We are not people accustomed to waiting. Friends, do you see how that can transpose itself over into our spiritual lives? And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves sort of twiddling our thumbs saying, God, you can't, you can't do this any faster. But think about the very beginnings of Christianity. God had a plan to, from an entire nation of people, bring about a Savior who would redeem some from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. It's an incredibly vast plan. How did He start? He started with one dude, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah, who couldn't have kids, and said, from the two of you old fuddies, I'm going to make a new human people group. And then he waited a decade, seemingly doing, as far as the eye could see, nothing. Friends, God's not in a hurry. He's not rushing. He's not in a panic. He's not anxious. He's not unsure about how things are going to turn out. God's process of growing His kingdom is much, much, much slower than we would want it to be. But the fact is, He's always working. Whether we see it or not, He's up to good. Every time. When you pray, Christian, He hears you. When you read the Scriptures, He speaks. When we gather, He's here. Every time. But the growth of the seeds of His kingdom happen on his timetable, not ours. When I was in my 20s, I was very discouraged about my lack of progress spiritually. And somebody gave me a book uh, called The Growth Letters. And it's kind of funny because today on the front of it, it looks like it has a marijuana plant. <laughs> so I can't give it out anymore. But um, the, the book in the very first chapter, the author says, God is um, not growing a squash. He's growing an oak. What does the author mean? Why do they call a squash a squash? Well, it grows up incredibly fast, and then it gets nasty really quickly, and you can just squash it. That's a squash. Whoever made that gross diarrhea sound in your mouth, that was disgusting. <laughs> Who was that? You're not going to fess up to it. <laughs> All right. God's not growing something that sprouts up really quickly, and then just as soon as it comes, it's gone bad. No, God's growing an oak. God's growing something strong, stable, steady. 
deep roots, big branches, good shade. Be patient with each other. Be patient with yourself. Living the Christian life does not ordinarily feel like one victorious mountaintop to the next. It feels more like that farmer who sowed the seed and then rose and slept and rose and slept and rose and slept. But make no mistake, Christian, God is doing great things in you and in us. We stand in the end, let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd use your word now to minister to each person here, that if there's one who's not yet entered your kingdom, that you would impart life and they would respond to you with faith and repentance, believing that Jesus died and rose again. God, for the rest of us that already are part of your kingdom, through no cause of our own but your simple, wonderful, marvelous, scandalous grace. God, where our expectations are not aligned with your word, would you, would you line us back up, reset the bone, heal us that we might be able to run with you in what you're doing? And I pray in particular for anybody here who might be bored with you, that today you would begin a, a fresh work of mercy and grace, that you would revive him or her, and that great times of refreshing would come in your presence. God, thank you that you grow us at your pace, and we submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.